0: last time i spoke we talked on the the beatitudes and i was going to pick it up where we left off to be honest i don't remember where i left off so i just said verse nine looks good we'll just start there so we're going to do that in verse nine now each one of these beatitudes is a sermon in itself uh, jesus made some powerful statement in these few verses and believe it or not at the time that jesus spoke them they were considered radical now we've kind of domesticated The message of Christ to some degree, and I don't think we're as radical or revolutionary as it was in Jesus' time. When Jesus was making these statements, they were very bold statements that he was making. And the content of the Sermon on the Mount is what helped put Jesus on the radar of both the political system, which was Rome. Even though Palestine had a king, you know, King Herod, um, they were still under Roman occupation. He was appointed by. Rome, the Sanhedrin, or the, 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 uh, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish system, the temple, Jesus sent waves to them as well because not all, they were also appointees of Rome. They weren't actually the, if you read in the book of Leviticus about the lineage of Aaron, the guys that were in power at that time in the temple were not the legitimate uh, priesthood or the high priest. They were appointed by the king of Palestine, who was an appointment of Rome. So it was very, very political. So when Jesus came in and made some statements like he was did here in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, they viewed him as a threat to the system. And there were comments made like Jesus would say, You have heard it said, but I say, So he was telling them, You've heard in the law, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And basically what that's saying is, is, is that justice has to be meted out according to the degree to which it was inflicted. You can't give somebody more punishment ...than what the, the crime called for. But Jesus went on to say, you've heard this said, you know, an eye for an eye, but I tell you, tell you this, if somebody smites from the right cheek, give them the left cheek. If somebody wants to take away your coat, give them your tunic. So he, he made some very, very powerful statements that were uh, against the re- challenging the religious traditions of his day. And not only that, he asked his followers here in Matthew chapter 5, you'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was asking for his followers to pledge their allegiance... To the kingdom of God. You say, my kingdom is not of this earth. Our kingdom. My kingdom is out of, uh, in another realm. You know if it was of this earth. We would do this. We would do that. But my kingdom is not here. My kingdom is not based upon anything in this world. So he was telling his followers. Not to have any affection or any uh, attachment. To the political systems in this world. But our first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. So when he made statements like this, the uh, leaders viewed him with suspicion because they knew that the words that he spoke, if people really lived these out and acted on them, that they would literally turn the world upside down. And this is why they felt that they had to stop Jesus. If we truly look at each of these Beatitudes, we realize that they are difficult to live out without a total surrender of God. I mean, if you read them, you're going to realize, hey, I can't do this on my own. There's nothing in me that wants to be a peacemaker. I, I mean, I'd li- I like the idea of peace. I don't know if I could be a peacemaker. I don't know if I could be meek. I don't know if I could be forgiving. I don't know if I could be loving. All the things that Jesus maps out in the, um, the, uh, the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount um, were, are very, very difficult to actually live out. You know, we kind of gloss over them, but if we really look at these and what they mean, it's, Jesus is asking us to do something that only he can do through us, Amen. a life that's totally surrendered. So the story goes that in the fourth century, there was a monk called Telemachus. And I don't know, there's various stories about Telemachus. You can read it on Google. You can Google it in Wikipedia. There's several stories out there. It is said that he lived in a cloistered monastery. Now, I don't know if for many of you are familiar with the monasteries. You know, these guys go there and it looks very noble, looks very religious, it looks very pious. That we're going to go up on top of this mountain, this uh, old uh, monastery, and we're going to pray all day. Some monasteries, you know, they uh, cloisters, they don't speak, don't use any words. Uh, some of them, you know, they live on bread and water. You know, it, it sounds very pious. Because, and, and you like you separate yourself up here on this mountain because you're going to get so close to God. You want to get close to God that you don't want anything in this world to dilute you, anything in this world to contaminate you. You're going to be up on this mountain away from everything and away from the world where you can draw near to God. Now, that sounds good in theory. It sounds good. But it's really not good idea and it's really not what God has in mind for us so he lived in isolation from the world to devote himself to God but you cannot truly devote yourself to God if you live in isolation from the world because Jesus said that we are the light of the world we are the salt of the earth and how can we bring light into darkness if we never go out into the darkness How can we bring salt to the world? How can we make people thirsty for God if we keep it all to ourselves? And as pious and religious as that sounds and as holy as that sounds, that's not what God said. If you read what Jesus said everywhere in the the conclusion of all of the Gospels, Jesus said, go into all the world. Preach the Gospel to every creature. Everywhere you go, look, Jesus said go. Go, 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 go. He never said go isolate, go hide, go. The only way you're going to get free of the world is if you put yourself in this little this little cave and forget about it. that's not what God God never told us to do that. So Telemachus or uh, Telemachus came to this revelation that you cannot really serve God without serving people. Amen. He abandoned his monostatic life and set out for Rome. And when he arrived in Rome, the city was teeming with excitement. The Roman legions had just won a victory over the Goths. I'm not talking about the kids in black on um, the chains. <laughs> These were Goths. These were like people that had axes and swords and killed other people. And, and in celebration, Gothic prisoners were forced <laughs> to fight to the death in gladiatorial combat. They would take these prisoners and they would force them to fight each other until somebody was dead. And the whole city was frenzied with lust for blood. Now the interesting thing was at the time this happened, Rome was considered a Christian city. There was an estimated crowd of 80,000 people screaming for blood. Rome was one of the first mega cities of its day, I think, in the time of uh, Julius Caesar. They had a population of over a million. It was a huge city. And here the city was teeming <coughs> with people screaming for blood, a Christian city, 80,000 people, many of them Christians, screaming for death. And Telemachus found this site deeply disturbing. And the story says... That when he saw this, that he was so shocked that he leapt into the arena and placed himself between the two gladiators and begged them to stop fighting. Don't do this! Don't do this! He begged them to stop fighting. He would tell them. In some stories, it says that he said, "In the name of Jesus, stop!" And this shocked the gladiators. They just stood there stunned, looking at each other, looking at him. And with the delay in the fight, uh, causing the commencement to, to be longer than they anticipated, the crowd became furious. 80,000 people, many of them Christian, they began to pick up stones and they hurled them at Telemachus. So, and literally stoned him to death. And one story says that when the crowd saw Telemachus's body, lifeless body lying in the sand they grew silent and one by one they filed out of the arena and it is said that three days later that the emperor declared telemachus a martyr and stopped all such spectacles for good and telemachus had accomplished his goal jesus pronounces a blessing on peacemakers not peace wishers not peace hopers, not peace keepers, but peacemakers. Jesus is not now. According to some, I, I, myself I, here lately, I have I have uh, ran across some guys that are consider themselves Anabaptists, and they have uh, been very enlightening some of the things that they say. But they take a very strong stand against violence, nonviolence, uh, pacifism. And I look at it and I listen to that and I say, as noble as that sounds, I don't think that I could do it in every instance. Um, I, I just, I, not that I'm advocating everybody go out and kill somebody, but pacifism in some instances is not what Jesus was calling us to be. Okay? He said peacemakers. Pacifism says we go along to get along. We just acquiesce, we just surrender, we become a doormat in order that we keep peace and harmony. We want everybody to get along. We want everybody to be happy. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We want everybody to be warm and fuzzy and just get along. Peacemaking is not placating. Peacemaking, in many instances, does not avoid conflict. It actually causes conflict.
1: Okay. In many
0: instances, peacemaking does not avoid conflict. It it causes conflict. I think that's what I said. Yes. It will cause us. It will cause conflict because if you're a peacemaker, you have to reconcile two opposing forces to come together. And you can't placate. You can't uh, just just lay down and and, uh, I'll do whatever you want. Just be happy. We just want to be happy. We don't want any. You have to. Some there are times that you literally have to make a stand. And sometimes you cannot avoid conflict. Now, uh, pacifism or uh, peacemaking is not acquiescing to make everybody happy. That's pacifying. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, do not assume, in Matthew 10, 34, do not assume that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now I know some people have taken that to another extreme, and holy wars, and marching off the war to kill the infidel, that was the the crusades and that, but that's not what Jesus was saying either. He was saying that if... The message that I preach is not going to give everybody warm fuzzies. It's not going to cause everybody to get along. Some people are going to be strongly opposed to what I teach. It was then, and it is now. If you want to stand for righteousness, say something about God's righteousness. Say something about morality. Say something about decency in our world, and see what kind of conflict you get. All right? (laughs) Say say something that opposes to political correctness and watch how. See how much conflict it causes. The Bible is not a tool of pacifism. It is a tool that sometimes will cause conflict in people's lives because God is calling us to something higher and it goes against our human nature. What's my next slide up there? Oh, we'll get that. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So Jesus did not come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword, meaning that there are many times that we're going to conflict. We have conflict with one another. There's times that your beliefs will bring you into conflict with the world around you. It's going to bring you into conflict with your, with your coworkers, with your very family. You look at that text, that's what Jesus was addressing. So good hermeneutics tells us that when we read something about God, that does not reconcile with the other things we know about God, we must take a deeper look at it. Okay? And I know a lot of Reformed guys, a lot of Reformed uh, pastors and teachers, they want to tell you about the love of God. God is a loving God. But God is an angry God. He's a God of wrath, and he'll kill you all if you don't make any happy. Okay. So we've got to reconcile some things here. And they're quick to point that out. God loves you, but God will kill you in a heartbeat. All right? So when we read things about God's nature and it conflicts with other things, we have to reconcile what is God about. What is God saying here? We must look deeper. We can't pull one verse out and build a doctrine on it. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He preached peace everywhere he went. He spoke peace to the storms, the Bible tells us. We never see Jesus taking arms up against those who hated him. You know, these Romans, these Jews, they really don't get me. You know what we are going to do? We're going to take up arms and we're just going to pull them off. Because I'm not a rat. But I love them too. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus never said that. What did he say? He said, love your enemies. What did he say? Love your enemies. Pray for those who do bad to you. Anybody been done bad? Somebody done, done you bad? How many of you have been, ever been done bad by Christian people? Stab you in the back and pray for you at the same time. Love your enemies. Pray for those who do bad to you. So when Jesus says he came to bring a sword, not peace, what did he mean? He meant that his message would cause conflicts. There are times when things need to be confronted. Peacemaking will confront wrong. Alright? It's going to confront things that are wrong. (coughs) There are times when we will hurt people's feelings. There will be times when we will make people angry. There will be times when people will hate us. But that should not stop us from actively engaging people in an attempt to reconcile them to God. Now, notice what Jesus said. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. This denotes action. Action. It is intentional. It is dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and it is relational. Number one, peacemaking is intentional. Next slide. (laughs) This means that it is done with a purpose. A peacemaker's purpose is to actively seek to reconcile people to God and to one another. This means that it's done with a purpose. A peacemaker's purpose is to seek reconciliation between man and God. We have people, and when we preach the message, we shouldn't preach the message that, yeah, if you turn, you, if you don't give your life over to God, you're going to spend eternity in hell and burn forever. And, you know, we're glad you're gone. That's not preaching the love of God. We've got to preach the love of God and confront people, not giving up on, our, uh, on where we stand about righteousness and where we stand about eternity and where we stand about the mercies of God. But we can't do it in a way that's offensive. We have to do it in a way that's honest and done with love. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verses 18 through 20 says this now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself Not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation Now then we are ambassadors for Christ As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message. Be reconciled to God. There's a world that needs to hear this. This is the message of the peacemaker. To reconcile, that is to restore harmony between God and man. See, sin broke the harmony between God and man. And when mankind sinned, he was now off-key. Mankind made many attempts to restore that harmony, but every attempt on man's part failed, and mankind was able to bring about that perfect pitch to harmonize with God. God is the God of music. All right? I I like music. We like music. You know, anybody got a favorite genre? What's your favorite genre? That means what type of music do you like? South Coast. <laughs> What's that. South Coast. South Coast. South Coast. <laughs> me, and no, my, my, my my. You're in my car with my me and my wife. Usually it's on 98.5. That's because it plays music from the best era ever, as the as uh, the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> so we listen to that. So we go down and we were we were out to dinner last night. And we were listening to some songs and it's like, man, I hadn't heard that song in forever. And you still singing the songs. How many of you grew up with American Top 40? Every top forty, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Casey Kasem. God put the desire for music in us. God is a musical God, and I like the music in church. I believe that you know we uh, should praise God in our worship and our music, and uh, the, the the music gives everybody that has talents an opportunity to use those talents for God's glory. Amen. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, yes, there really is a book called Zephaniah. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God will rejoice over you. God will sing over you. God wants there to be harmony between us and him. He's singing a song, but we're off key because of sin. Sin put us off key. We have to find that pitch. And God has a song that he would like to sing over all of us. And he wants us to sing it with him. And in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, the Bible tells us that when we get to heaven, that we will all have a new song that we will sing before the throne of God. Pitch will be restored. Harmony between God and man will come about. And we will sing before his throne. And I think God's going to like it. And God will probably join in with us. The style is not important. Now, if we get to heaven and God's saying country western, I might have a problem. <laughs> to be honest, I do. My wife corrupted my son. I remember when she was, we lived in Louisiana. Or when, we, when you lived there, it's not, we're, Louisiana's actually two states in one. There's I-10 that separates South Louisiana from North Louisiana. <laughs> south Louisiana is Cajun, and it's a Cajun music, you know, and <laughs> <chen-cheng-cheng-cheng. laughs> the French music. And uh, the North part, it's predominantly French in the South, and and they have a different accent. And in the northern part of the state, above like that's I-10, Louis, that's Louisiana, Louisiana, and in Louisiana. They like to wear their boots and their hats and that. And so one day, my wife had my son, and he had his cowboy boots on in the car, and they were driving down, and they were singing Garth Brooks. I got friends in Low Place. <laughs> I thought, what are you teaching this kid? <laughs> so the style is not important, but the harmony is. The harmony is. God wants there to be harmony. And our task as peacemakers is to teach this redemption song to others. When God saved you, when God filled you with his spirit, when you were born again, God put a song on the inside of you that he wants you to share with other people. That they can have, they, they can join in harmony with God. This message is not doom and gloom. This message is not that he is an angry God and he's mad at the world and he's mad at all of us and he can't wait to just come down here and burn it all over the ground. I don't get that when I read about God. Sin separates us. We cause the problem. God wants to do everything within his power to reconcile us. His message is not turn or burn. I remember I came up in the 70s. How many of you remember I found it Bumper Stickers? <laughs> Man, you guys are looking at me like, do you remember that? I found it. I found it. I put it on the bumper sticker. I found it. Everybody's like, what does that mean? I found it. You found Jesus. And back then it was like, you know, you know, people litter on the ground. Hey, what are you littering? Well, it's, it's all going to burn anyway. So as an excuse, God's going to burn it all. So it doesn't matter. So all that says this: God's message is peace, and his peace is between man and God. And Jesus wants there to be harmony between you and God the Father. Sin has separated people from him for too long. And our mission as peacemakers is to let the world know that there is a God who cares. I read something interesting recently. And it wasn't that the the generation that we live in uh, doesn't believe in God. It's that they don't believe that God cares. Uh, certainly, did people are not saying that, you know, that, you know there could be. You know, we don't really say that we don't believe in God. We just don't believe that God really cares. We need to let the world know that there is a God who cares. Yes. Let people know that God wants to have a relationship with them. And that God has a plan for their life. 2 Corinthians chapter five, Okay, we already read this one. And it looks like i duplicated my notes here. <laughs> There is a new song that he wants some people to sing along with him, and that is to bring peace to a world filled with turmoil. And our purpose is to preach peace to a world in chaos. Next slide. Number two. Peacemaking is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Peacemaking is a work that God brings about through his Spirit. If we could do it all in our flesh, if we could do it all ourselves, then why would we need God? If we could do it all in our ability, then why would we need God? God has given us a task to reach the world. We can't do this in our own power. It's impossible. We can't touch people's lives. We can't affect people to draw them to God without God's spirit in us drawing people to him. This is a work of God's spirit. Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is peace. And what is is at the heart of a peacemaker? Love. The Bible tells us, For God so loved the world that he sent his one-of-a-kind Son into the world to restore peace to all humanity. And he did this because he loves us. He did this because he loves us. God wants us to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. To speak truth in love that illuminates us as to what to speak and how to speak it. Have, you, I don't know if you've ever heard this illustration before. But, uh, uh, I'm going to digress just a little bit. But In human language, in our language. It's estimated that somewhere between 75 to 90% of what we say is nonverbal. Tone of voice, inflection, choice of words, the way we say it changes the meaning of what we say. You can take the same phrase and say it in different ways, and it can mean something completely different. Like, I love you. I can say, I love you. Yeah. I love you. The way it was said. Mm-hmm. The same is true with the gospel message. We can tell people, God loves you. Or we can say, God loves you. We can, it's the message that we have, the way we say it, and we need the Holy Spirit to tell us how to approach people and how to speak that love to them. Right. Amen. And also. We need the Holy Spirit in us to be selfless in our work to reconcile people to God. When we put ourselves in a position to make a difference in people's lives, there has to be a sacrifice of myself to be willing to reach somebody to touch another person's heart. I have to surrender. I have to be willing to do what God would have me to do to minister to this life, to this mind. Okay, next slide. This is the best slide in here. slide. Peacemaking is relational. For they shall be called the children of God. The children of God. The sons of God. If you see my son, which I didn't put up there because I didn't want to go through a bunch of family pictures and put them up there. But if you see my son, you'll see my wife. My wife looks like her dad. My son looks like my wife. My grandkids look like my wife. (laughs) Those bonad genes are strong (laughs) Yeah, My wife, it's a family resemblance. And you can still see that family resemblance. My my grandkids have great-grandparents that they've never met, but yet they look like them. You can see them in them. A family resemblance that's passed along. When the world looks at us, what do they see? What do they see? They should see our father. They should recognize that family resemblance in the way we speak, the way we act, and in the way we love. I can tell everybody I'm a Christian. A man can make, my grandfather used to say this when I was a kid. A man can make a mouth say anything. And people can tell you that they're a Christian, but what they say and what they do sometimes does not reconcile. If we say that we love, let us demonstrate that love. Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruit. You can't, grab, you can't gather <laughs> apples from a lemon tree. That lemon tree here, that lemon tree can say, I'm an apple tree. I was, you know, I'm going to have a, a, a fruit a replacement done on me, and I'm going to be an apple tree. You no, know, you're always going to be a lemon tree. You're always going to produce lemons. That's the way God made you. You're going to be a lemon tree. So if you say one thing and do something else, then it speaks bad about our Father. If Jesus had shed his blood just to save us from a burning hell, that would have been enough. I'll be honest. When I was about 15 years old, I was in a little Pentecostal church in Longwood, Florida. And they preached one Sunday, and the pastor literally scared me to death. And I decided right then I better get saved because Jesus was coming back and I wasn't going to make it and I was going to burn in hell forever. And that's what catapulted me to the altar. And we prayed and back then we had, you know, people would get around and pray for you and, and lay hands on you and all that. And because I didn't want to go to hell. But eventually that fear wears off. That's why if you tell somebody, you know, make them scared, fear only works for a little while. And then people wise up to it. They, you know, they, they change their opinion. You have to have something that's la- outlast fear. And so eventually I had to develop a relationship with God if I was going to continue with God. I couldn't continue to, to fall on my face before God, wondering, Am I going to make it today? Is there something that I'm going to do? If I didn't pray enough, am I going to burn in hell forever? If I'm if I don't witness, if I don't go out door knocking this Saturday with the church, we do that all the time. If I don't fast, if, is, this, is this going to cause the Lord not to be pleased with me? And it was bondage. It was bondage. But if Jesus came to save us from just burning in hell, that would have been enough. But it was more than that. It was more than that. Jesus didn't die on the cross because he had to. Now, some people say, what do you mean? It had to be. The law says, the Bible says, it had to be this. There had to be the shedding of blood. God's God. God can do whatever he wants to do. God could have said, mankind, you are forgiven. And what would have happened? We'd all been forgiven. So you don't force God to do something. God doesn't do something and say, you know, I really got to do this. I don't want to do it, but I got to do it because this is what it says and I got to do it. He didn't, wasn't forced to do anything. God is big and he can do whatever he wants. And it would have been so. God doesn't do anything because he has to. The sacrifice of Christ was to show us how much he loved us. And to what extent he would go to bring us into his family. I love you so much that I will give my very best for you. I choose to do this. Nobody's making me do this. I do this because I want to do it, because I love you and I care about you and I want you to be where I am forever. Not because it says in a book that I have to do it. I do this because I have chosen to do this. And Romans 8.15 says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption whereby by whom we cry out, Abba Father. That is to say, literally, my daddy. My daddy. Ephesians 2 and 10 says this. I didn't want to write all these out because I was just too lazy to make slides for them. And it says, Ephesians 2 and 10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's masterpiece. That's what that word means there. We are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We are his poema. Prepared for good works. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 says this. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Our physical appearance isn't what resembles God. It's his spirit in us. And God has called us to do great things, good things, things that reflect his love toward all humanity. And God has called us to do these things. And Jesus said, there is one thing that will let the world know that you are my disciples. And people think, what's the greatest spiritual gift there are? There is, and they debate about the gifts. The greatest of these is love. And Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples by your love. He didn't even say by your, your, your correctness, your biblical correctness. He, but by your love shall all men know. By the church, not by the church you go to or the denomination that you affiliate with, but by love shall all men know that you are my disciples. Amen. The greatest spiritual gift is love, and it is the essence of God's being. There are no more power, greater words in the world than God is love. It doesn't say that God is loving or that God loves. It says that God is love. God's very essence, God's very being, everything he does comes from the fact that he is a God of love. Everything comes out of that fact. God is love. It's not a part of God. It is God. Everything God does is rooted in those three words, and everything we should do that we do should exemplify them as well. So, I've said all that for what? We live in a violent, chaotic, and anxiety-filled world. I mean, today there's probably more people on antidepressants than any other time in in the world. We have more pharmaceuticals today than we did 15, 20 years ago. There are drugs that exist right now that didn't exist 10 years ago. And if you turn on your television, ask your physician about this. We've got a drug for everything. Anxiety is in our society. People take, and It's because there's just so much anxiousness in our world that God tells us don't be anxious for anything. <clears throat> God is a God of peace, and he wants to calm life's storms. Now, he could do it all by himself, but he chooses to partner with his children for the good news to be declared. In other words, God's using us to reach the world to make a difference. And that that when the world sees us, that they will see him in us and a resemblance like my wife's picture of my granddaughter. The resemblance cannot be denied.